So before we begin here for a minute, a little introduction here, I'd like you to take a little trip with me. Settle back in your seats. Not too far back, because I don't want anybody sleeping. But we're going to travel back to the springtime of 33 AD. I want you to think of yourself as in the marketplace in Jerusalem. And it's crowded. Remember, there's tens of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem getting ready to celebrate Passover. So you're standing there, you're being jostled around, you're trying to have a conversation with one of your friends. It might go something like this. What do you think about Christ? Jesus. Wasn't that kind of amazing, the way he entered Jerusalem two days ago on a donkey with all that crowd and the palm branches? And you know, it's like, that's kind of that's interesting. Did you hear what he did yesterday? He threw everybody out of the court of the Gentiles. There's not an animal left. There's not a money changer in sight. Nobody's selling anything, and it's quiet. What's that mean? What's going on here? Now take a little further trip with me. Let's walk about 100 yards, 150 yards towards the temple to the room where the Sanhedrin's meeting. Now the Sanhedrin are the 70 elders responsible for, for the worship in, in, in the temple and in the nation. And they're having a similar conversation, although not being jostled by the crowd. So what might that look like? What that sound like? This Jesus is getting to be a problem. Everybody's following after him. Not only that, he totally messed up the temple. He drove everybody out of there. Why did he do, how did he do that? By whose authority does he do that? He acts like he owns this place. Like maybe this is his temple. It's not, it's ours. We're responsible for what happens here. And some of the people even think he might be the Messiah. That can't possibly be the case. He comes from Galilee. Everybody knows the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. So it can't be him. Hmm, what are we going to do? Oh yes, Bob Daly. We have a little financial problem here too. Just, just so you all remember. This is about 70 people. It's about the size of the Sanhedrin. You're getting a, You're each getting a cut from every money changer and from every stall you rent that's selling animals in the temple. Bob, how are we going to make the budget this year? We need all those, get, we, you know, that's how we make this thing run. How are we going to do that? What's going on here? What are we going to do? And that leads us to this morning's text. What are we going to do? Well, what they decide to do is send Chris and Ed and Bob to go see Christ and ask him the question. So if you're able, out of respect for God's word, if you'd stand, and we'll read, and I'll read to you the sermon text this morning from Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the Lord our God. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words that I speak this morning be not mine, but yours. May they go forth and do your will. May they reveal you to us more fully. Help us to love you more deeply and obey you more completely. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So their answer here is a delegation to go ask Christ by what authority he does these things. Um, probably this question has a little more meaning than by what authority he did the things in the temple the day before. This probably references his entire ministry over the last three years. All the signs, the miracles, the preaching, everything he's done. Probably has that, that inference to it. And their hope here, I think, is that they're going to trick Christ into saying something that will do one of two things. He'll either utter a blasphemy, which they can charge him with and will turn the people against him, or he will say something that will get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And they can use that to bring a charge against him to get rid of him. they will, for the rest of Holy Week, continue on that strategy, and Pete will cover that in subsequent sermons as he takes us through that. But they will continue to send people to try and trap and trick Christ into saying something they can use against him. They ask Christ by whose authority, and he refuses to tell them unless he ans they answer his question about John. And, they, and, it's in, and he puts them in what Ed would call, if you remember the last couple times ago Ed preached, he talked about the double bind, and they're trying to put Christ in a double bind, put him in a position where he can't answer the question without getting himself in trouble. In this case, Christ flips it and puts the Sanhedrin in a double bind by asking them the question about from what authority does John's ministry stem? You see that in their discussion, right? If we say from man, the people are going to get angry, right? Because they believe John is a prophet, and rightly so he is, and a martyr. If they say from heaven, then Christ is going to look them in the eye and say, yeah, and why didn't you believe? Now, there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a little deeper subtlety here, I think. It's not just a question about John's authority. 
it's the question about John's testimony. Because if, if you say his, te- his ministry is from heaven, then you validate his testimony. And his testimony is what? This is the Son of God. And that's the answer to the authority question. How does he do these things? He does them because he is God's son. By what authority does he do them? Because he is God's son and God has given him that power to do that. Within 40 years, every member of the Sanhedrin is going to lie dead in the city of Jerusalem amongst the ruins of the city and the temple. As God will visit judgment on the nation of Israel for their rejection and murder of his son. That judgment is a type of the final judgment that we all will face. Make no, make no doubt about it, we are sinners just like the people in the Sanhedrin. What you see in them is a steadied, hardened, premeditated, rejection of Christ. They will not come no matter the evidence. We are fundamentally in no different shape. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and as Isaiah says, like sheep we've gone astray. We would all be subject to that judgment, except God in his mercy provides salvation for us. And he provides it by the death of his son on the cross. That death justifies us. Christ takes the penalty of my sins on the cross and clothes me in his righteousness. And I stand justified before God and so do you. At the same time, I don't want you to, that's the essence of the gospel message, but there's more to it. It often stops with the, um, with, with the coming to saving faith. But I want you to remember that's the beginning. There's much more there than just that. At that moment, he begins to sanctify us by the presence of the Spirit in our life. He begins a process of making us like Christ. A process he will finish when we see Christ face to face. He adopts us as his children and tells us to call him Father. We who are hardened sinners against him, he takes as our children. If you're a child, you're what? You're also an heir. What are you an heir of? You are an heir of all the promises that God has given in the scriptures, in that book. And what are some of those? I will be with you. I will comfort you. I will not forsake you. I have prepared a place for you. He will resurrect us in glorified bodies, and we will be in heaven, in a new heaven and a new earth, a place where there is no pain, no sickness, no suffering, no death, and probably most important, no sin. I don't know about you, 
and when I look at my life, I still see the sin that I struggle against. It is almost impossible for me to imagine what that's going to be like in heaven. No sin, either in you or in me. Forever. We get to enjoy God. He's prepared a banquet, a house, a room. All the blessings and promises that are in that book are yours and they're mine if you've come to Christ. We do indeed serve a gracious and a loving God. My plea here, though, is if there's somebody listening online or in this room who hasn't come to Christ, then you need to pray and ask the Lord's Spirit into your life. Repent and confess of your sins and come to Christ, and then all those benefits are yours. Now, I'm going to switch for a minute here and because uh, that's kind of the message, if you will, for those who are not Christians. For those of us who are in this room, a couple of warnings in this passage, I think. First, this passage, I think, challenges us to take a good look at our faith and be sure it's real, that it is a true faith to be sure that we have put our trust in Christ and it's not like the scribes and the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin that we're just not going through the motions, keeping up the outward appearance of religion, if you will, but not trusting in Christ for salvation. Going through the motions, the outward motions, if you will, for whatever perceived benefit we think we get by being in the church. If you're in that position, or think you are, or if you are, then I urge you, Go back to my last message, last part of the message. Come to Christ. The second warning is like onto the first, I think. And this is the one that's probably a little, a little more pertinent, I think, to, to us. Well, we've come to faith in Christ. The concern here is that our faith gets complacent where we get really comfortable in it. And we don't do the things we are called to do or perhaps are not as faithful in doing the things the Lord has called us to do as we should. That's easy to do. In this, in this day and age with a hectic pace of life, it's easy to get too busy. I've been there and done that, trust me. I had 44 years of that experience. And it's easy to fall in that trap Perhaps because we're all relatively well off, pretty comfortable really, it can be easy to get just a little bit too comfortable perhaps and a little bit too complacent. If that's the case, what do we do? How would we fix that? And I would suggest that, that God has provided that way for us in the scriptures. In Sunday school, we've been going through Acts and we've seen this a little bit in the early church. Basically, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know here, and, but that is to use the means of grace that God has given us. First of those would be to read the scriptures daily. Meditate on them. Meditate in Hebrew, by the way, when you read Psalm 1, means muttering, chewing. It means going over it and over it, 
studying it to get all the meaning out of it, out of the passage. If when you read the scriptures, you don't have questions, if there aren't passages there that don't make you do this or perhaps concern you, then you need to read a little more deeply. And when you get those passages, either work them out or come and see somebody who can help you do that. A Bible study is good. Talk to the elders. Talk to fellow Christians. Talk to Ed. Talk to Pete. I've never known either one of those guys not to be more than happy to sit down with a passage of Scripture and go through it with someone if you've got a question or it confuses you or it doesn't seem to make sense. They would be happy. We would all be happy to walk through that with you because that's how we work out our faith in fear and trembling is to work those issues out. As you learn the scriptures, as you study them, that goes into your heart. It changes who you are. It's partly how the Lord works the sanctification in us. Second thing would be obviously regular attendance at worship, and there's two benefits there I want to talk about for a minute. First is obviously hearing the word preached. That's another way to get understanding of the word and what it means. Um, but when you come to the sermon, you have to listen attentively. It's work. I was at a, at a conference here recently that maybe, maybe Chris has seen studies like this. So if you're sitting there listening to my sermon this morning intently, and you come back next week and Pete gives you the quiz, you'll probably get a score of about 2%. That's about what you'll remember. If you're listening intently and taking some notes, your retention rate probably will go up to about 15%. If you're listening intently, taking notes, and discuss the sermon with someone else during the week, Perhaps your spouse over lunch, your family at dinner, another friend, an elder, a pastor, whatever. You know what your retention rate goes up to? You will finally pass. It'll go up to about 80%. That retention of that teaching, again, is what works on your sanctification and helps to affect how you live your life as the word goes deeper and deeper into your mind and your heart. Second benefit is the mutual encouragement of the saints, both yours for me and me for you. A couple of thoughts came to my mind while I was, was getting ready to do this. One of them, I've mentioned this before, the older members in the congregation have generally been there and done that have seen much in our lives. There's much wisdom there that I would urge the younger people to take advantage of. And I would urge the older people to be gracious in answering and helping them through that. Kind, encouraging word. Remember the Lord's, Lord's speech? He who gives a cup of cold water to one of mine shall by no means lose his reward. I was looking for the cup of water up here, but it isn't here, but okay, it's about that big, right? You're saying like, 
that doesn't seem like it's very impressive. And by the world standards, probably not. But by the person who needs water, it really is. A kind word, an encouraging word at the right time is like a glass of cold water. And, and, and that's something we can all do. The other thing I've seen, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd hesitate to even try to get a number on the number of meals you ladies have cooked, maybe even a few of you men, I'm not sure, and have delivered to people who have been in need or have benefited from having a meal, right, sent to them to help them through a difficult time. Um, just a note or a phone call, a card, a birthday card. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be a great thing, but there are a lot of little things that we can do that can be very meaningful and encouraging to each other in our walk through this life. can look for opportunities to serve other people. But I, I know you bring Chuck to church a lot. You give him a ride. Take somebody shopping if they need a ride. Um, send flowers. Where, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do that are not huge, but are significant and opportunities. And you need to be encouraging and looking and seeking for those opportunities when we're together as a congregation. My last, my next one rather, I should say, you're not that lucky, I'm not done yet, would be prayer. Now I'm not talking here about a 25 second prayer before you have a meal. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm talking about fervent prayer. I'm talking about prayer as David prays. Prayer as Paul prays. And that takes time. We pray because God told us to, because he wants to hear from us. Because it's partly how he sanctifies us and teaches us. It's an opportunity to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord for what he's done, to pour out our concerns and questions before him. A couple of thoughts I had here. One, because of my schedule when I worked, it was kind of erratic at times. And the thing that I struggled with in doing prayer that, that helped me is I finally fixed the set time in the day for me to do that. I may or may not work for you, but that's, that's one way you can, you can start. Second thing is, I'm an old man. And nobody else in this room, I'm sure, has this problem, but my memory's attention span, just ask Mary, is probably somewhere between here and here. If I don't write down the prayer requests, or the, the things that come to my mind to pray for, then I tend to forget them. If you know those, so if you got a great memory, that's fine. If it's a photographic memory, or so to speak, that's even better. But that might be another thing that would help you when you pray. If you're, if you're going to tell me or you think that you don't really know how to go about it, you're just not sure what to say, how to go about it, then I would tell you 
You got 150 examples in this book. Read the Psalter. You've got, you've got the prayer we pray every week that Christ taught us to pray. You've got Paul's prayers in the New Testament. There are a lot of examples there about of, of how to go about it or how you might want to think about it or that would encourage you to do that. The other uh, one that I have used personally is the acronym ACTS. Um, and it's good for me because, frankly, if I don't do this, my prayer life tends to be a list of, Lord, will you do this for me? Will you heal Caleb? Will, will you do something for somebody else? And it just becomes, if I'm not careful, it tends to make me think of God as a little genie that I'm going to rub, right? Here's my list of things I, I need you to do. And while the Lord does tell us to come and pray for those things, there's also much more in your prayer life than just that. And the, and the acronym ACTS starts out, the A is for adoration. It's to praise God for who he is. Not even for what he's done, just for who he is. When you read Paul's epistles, watch the number of times Paul stops in the, it seems like in the middle of a letter and praises God for who he is. It happens quite frequently. Con the C is for confession, confession of my sins. T is for thanksgiving. My, my favorite grumbling thing here on Facebook is we need prayer for this. You guys have heard this story before. Request goes out. Maybe you find out what happened, and if it turned out the prayer is answered, you very seldom see the thanksgiving that comes with it. One of the things you'll notice when you read the Psalter and David's prayers, he consistently thanks God for what he's done, for how he's delivered David, for what, whatever the issue is. His thanksgiving is, is amazing. And the S is for supplication. There's, there's where you make the intercession prayers for yourself and for others. That model has helped me to keep that, my prayer life a little better in perspective. That may work for you, it may not, but I offer it to you for some thoughts. The last means of grace, of course, is, are the sacraments and communion. Partake of communion, which reminds us of what Christ has done for each and every one of us. Two last thoughts. One, you're going to tell me that list of things you just gave me requires time. I'm going to tell you, yes, it does. You're going to tell me I'm too busy, and I'm going to tell you that's wrong. If you are, then you need to think about where your priorities are and what you're doing. And I'll confess to you, I've been there. Right? I get Ed's been there. I know he has. When he was a lawyer, the 90-hour work week, when I worked at GM, the 80-hour work week was not a problem. Easy to get in that trick bag. Then you come home and go to the kids' hockey game. Then you go to bed. Uh, let's see, I haven't prayed in three days. I haven't read the scripture in two. 
That's not a good, that's not a good healthy place for me to be, and nor is it for you. So I just encourage you to, if that's the case, to think seriously about that. And my last thing I would offer is, since we're in this sandwich thing in Mark here, I sort of opened with the gospel and I'm going to end with the gospel. Pray and preach the gospel to yourself every day. And you say, well, why do I need to do that? You need to do that because it reminds you of what a great God we serve, what a merciful God he is, and the great salvation he's provided for us in Christ, and the great and, and just wonderful and magnificent, glorious eternity he has for each and every one of us. And in that encouragement, go forth into the day to live your life for his glory. Pat, would you pray with me? Father, any who have heard these words this morning who have not come to your son, Jesus Christ, in repentance and trust in him for their salvation, may you extend your grace to them through the work of your spirit and bring them into your kingdom. For those of us who trust in Christ and for our salvation, strengthen us in our faith by the power of your spirit. And by your means of grace, help us to faithfully worship you, to serve you and do the works that you have prepared for us to do beforehand. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.